everyone, and welcome to our 7 Investing Podcast. My name is Simon Erickson. Here at 7 Investing, we're here to empower you to invest in your future. And today, we're going to be looking at a couple topics, mainly digital health and cloud computing, which have been hot markets for investors recently, but we think that there's a lot more growth and plenty of runway ahead for them. And I'm very fortunate to be joined by Richard Chu. Richard is an analyst at Saga Partners and Luca Capital. He focuses on investing on a variety of different topics. He's based uh, somewhere, I think, Richard, between Ontario and Cleveland, Ohio. So thanks very much for joining 7investing here today. Thanks for having me, Simon. Richard, we're going to talk a little bit about digital healthcare and then also cloud computing in a little bit, but let's get started with kind of your journey and how you got into investing in the first place. Um, I've read your story, but I'd love to hear you tell it. It seems like there's a lot of reading and really getting into the nitty gritty of the details. Sure. So um, definitely like I'm sure that many of your viewers are already familiar with um, sort of my Twitter profile. It's Richard underscore Chu 97. And um, I have my own sort of Substack newsletter where um, I go into more depth, but to like sort of give you sort of the high level, um, basically like um, I am sort of a year out of school right now. Um, really like I'm still like, I, like, um, like, like I recently started at Saga Partners and it's uh, investment advisory based in uh, Cleveland. Um, and before that I uh, was really working at EY and um, I was doing technology consulting. So like not your traditional background for um, so I'm working in the finance industry right now, but uh, I was fortunate enough because I always had an interest in investing to really, um, at the start of the year, um, sort of start posting my thoughts on uh, Twitter and sort of writing some in-depth articles on Seeking Alpha. And I figured that that was sort of a really good way to really um, sort of uh, build my own track record and sort of get my own thesis out there and sort of... Uh, talk with other, connect with other like-minded investors. Um, and so I'd say like, that's where um, like my professional journey really started. And from there, I was introduced to uh, Saga Partners who had owned a position in Movonga at the time. And we've been talking ever since. Um, for, in terms of my um, own investing, I've um, like, I started um, around like mid 2018 and like one of the first sort of resources that I really felt helped me was the Motley Fool. And uh, I know that you guys have personally, like you're like, like, um, um, like, like, like uh, you, like you guys yourself, you definitely sort of made a big impact because like you were some of the first people that I followed on Twitter. So um, definitely like, it's great to uh, be joined by you guys. And ever since then, um, like I've really branched out and sort of read as much as I can, like everything from like annual letters to um, sort of investing books, both on like investing philosophy as well as within tech investing itself. And um, I've learned so, so much over sort of the past year and I'm continuing to like learn so much every single day. So I'm sort of excited to share, um, I guess, sort of uh, my knowledge so far. Well, thanks very much, Richard. And to return the compliment back to you, I think that that just the insight that you have, you're so detailed, you know, so thorough in the research that you do. That's such an advantage for investors. You leave no stones unturned. Uh, I know that you said in your background, you kind of started reading on Reddit, uh, a bunch of different online forums, posting to Seeking Alpha, po posting to Twitter. Uh, I really have enjoyed a lot of your work. And I guess before we jump into the first topic that we'll talk about, which is digital healthcare, I wanted to kind of ask about your investing approach. 
How do you start looking for companies? Do you look at the top down where you're looking at markets and you find opportunities from there? Or you just go out and start reading a whole bunch of annual reports and find the right companies? Yeah, so um, definitely, like I'd say, it really helps to sort of narrow my focus. Like currently, my focus has been built up in SaaS and digital health. And mainly the sort of reason behind that is both because I find that these are some of the areas where um, like are both huge in terms of the tailwinds behind them in terms of sort of the macro move um, with companies shifting from on-prem to the cloud, as well as you look at digital health, like especially with COVID, like ever since COVID, that's where um, I've sort of really focused a lot of my energy. And, and the reason behind that is that I feel that COVID really opened a door in terms of um, a lot of these opportunities, both in terms of um, regulatory changes, as well as um, sort of societal shifts and attitude. And um, these companies, I feel like they're disrupting sort of healthcare, which is something that um, both really needs to be disrupted and is one of the largest industries in the world. So um, definitely like that's where I focus most of my energy. And within those trends, I really pick out those companies that I feel are best positioned. So I'd say like, it's really important um, not um, like, like for me personally, um, I don't like sort of investing in sort of like a bucket of companies within like a potential trend that I like, like I like sort of really diving deep into um, each different company and sort of picking out sort of the leaders. And that's a, like some of the criteria that I look for um, in my sort of um, Twitter and as well as my Substack, I've posted an investing checklist that I really look for in companies, including criteria like um, making sure that they are a category leader, making sure that they um, both have a wide moat and that they're continuing to build upon that moat by continuing to innovate, continuing to um, really have um, sort of that visionary leadership um, to know where they're heading and um, just continuing to um, um, sort of build like a more advantage uh, competitive position. Um, I also look like I also really prefer companies that have recurring revenue, you know, like um, that elevator versus the typical staircase. And um, I also look for companies within large markets. So of course, digital health and SaaS, like they are huge industries, but like within them, you really have to sort of uh, pick out which trends are going to be most durable. For example, in digital health, um, I'm like, like I prefer remote monitoring companies much more than sort of telemedicine and peer plays. And that's the reasoning behind my investments within um, Teladoc and, um, and uh, Huami, which we'll talk about later. Um, and within sort of um, SaaS, like I guess, typically like you can look at sort of all of these different um, sectors and trends within SaaS, like a couple of the companies that I prefer the most Again, um, cybersecurity, like I think that typically cybersecurity is an area where it's hard to build durable competitive advantages, but you look at CrowdStrike and what they're doing with the threat graph, I feel like um, definitely net, the data network effects from that in terms of aggregating all that data and using it to stop breaches is definitely something that um, makes them special. I also think that Datadog, which um, I, I, like I think we'll talk about later is really well positioned within the trend of observability. So um, really sort of aggregating all of those different uh, previously siloed monitoring uh, tools together and helping sort of be sort of the picks and shovels to uh, companies move to the cloud. 
That's fantastic, Richard. I would I would encourage anyone watching or listening to this podcast to re-watch that section at least four or five more times. A <laughs> ton of insight on, on how Richard's finding companies. Let's talk about the first one of those sectors that you mentioned, which is digital health. Uh, just at the highest level, America alone is spending more than $3.5 trillion on healthcare every year. We know it's expensive. We know it's got problems and it's inefficient. But you mentioned uh, in something that you wrote earlier that you thought that COVID-19 was an inflection point in the adoption of telemedicine. Can you start me out by kind of explaining what that means and why that would be? Sure. So um, definitely like I feel like COVID, um, like it opened up sort of a universe of opportunities with industrial health. Um, telemedicine is one. And um, I was actually watching this Beth Kindig in the few, like interview yesterday and she said how you know, like um, VCs are dumping so much money into uh, telehealth right now. Um, I feel like this trend is sort of just beginning. And when you look at sort of telemedicine itself, like version one is companies like Teladoc, companies like Amwal, what were they doing? Like they were basically um, connecting, like providing an additional access point for consumers to reach doctors by. Um, and when you look at sort of where that's going in the future, Teladoc's recent acquisition of Lavongo should give you a clue to that. Um, I feel like telemedicine itself is going to sort of really be integrated with remote monitoring in order to really form this new sort of preventative um, care delivery model. So what I mean by that is um, a lot of people say um, how, you know, like telemedicine will never replace in-person visits because there's so much stuff within in-person visits, like the doctor, they have to like... Um, use like the stethoscope, like, like, um, like, like really sort of interact with you in person and um, get readings from there. And that can't really be done over video. And while that's true, you have stuff like remote monitoring, which is something that Lavongo provides. So like what that basically means is that you have sort of this um, continuous monitoring using sort of connected devices, like connected glucose meters, connected sort of um, um, heart rate monitors with, with, with like, like within stuff like your Apple Watch or like all of that different stuff. And that sort of integrates with telemedicine and basically the doctors, they have that continuous stream of data it may not be as accurate as the stuff that you can get within sort of a medical setting, but you have sort of that um, continuous stream of data, which can really give you a much wider picture than what you would be getting um, from a single visit, like you look at sort of the data from an Apple Watch, for example, like it can detect sort of diseases that you may not have even been aware of to know to go into a doctor's office. So that really shifts the equation from more of an acute care model to more of a preventive model. And what that creates is a better, more cost-effective uh, healthcare system that produces better outcomes. That makes a lot of sense. We, we've talked a lot about technology and healthcare over the years. Several years back, America pushed passed the High Tech Act, which was really kind of more focused to hospitals where they were trying to get them to adopt technology. It seems that to your point about COVID accelerating this trend, we've now got an opportunity to introduce technology to the consumers, to the patients themselves and let them to start adopt it. Uh, Richard, you actually at the end of 2019 picked Lavongo as your top stock pick for 2020. First yeah. of all, congratulations, fantastic return that that company's had this year. Excellent choice. It got acquired by Teladoc, as, as we all know, just a couple of months ago. How do you view this combined company? You know, Lavongo, as, as you were mentioning just a minute ago, was kind of more preventative. It was a, a hardware device that's actually continually monitoring. And that seems to be a little bit more proactive 
than, um, than Teladoc, which was before just using kind of virtual health visits. Do you think these two companies are going to be really a lot stronger together or is this like acquisition is going to be tough to swallow? Yeah, so I think like um, so far, definitely um, I've been really bullish on the merger. I've increased my position. It's now a significant portion of my portfolio. And I think that the market sort of hasn't been as appreciative of the merger. I think there are two main reasons for that. First, basically, is the merger overhang. Like a lot of people have been sort of um, concerned about the fact that Teladoc may be buying their growth. Like they've made 12 acquisitions over the past eight years. And the Lavongo merger is by far the biggest one. It came at a very, very costly price. And um, a lot of people have said that, hey, like Teladoc has run out of growth opportunities. So that, that's why they've been forced to pay up for Lavongo. Um, and the second reason being that COVID really is going to um, go away soon with the vaccine and potentially see like a, vis- a, a drop in visits. So I think like definitely like on the second point, I've already explained how I see it as more of a durable trend. Um, combined with the fact that, again, Teladoc gets like like um, 75, 80% of its revenues from subscriptions. So visit fees, it, don't, it doesn't like really um, affect their revenue as much as someone like Amwell. But then you look at sort of um, the, the first point, and I think that the synergies from the acquisition are definitely going to be um, really game-changing. Teladoc is launching virtual primary care next year. And what that basically is, is they can sort of integrate their full suite of services um, to really sort of um, help like sort of the 25% of Americans who don't have a primary care doctor. And when you think about that, like um, like what kinds of opportunities does does that provide? It provides really an end-to-end virtual experience um, where you first see your doctors through Teladoc um, for your annual primary care visit. They prescribe you maybe Livongo if you have diabetes, track you year round, bring you in for visits only if um, you really need it, only if like the data shows that you need it, and then pair you up with um, like the, the um, teledoc therapist, teledoc um, nutritionist, like their entire suite of multidisciplinary um, care team. And they work together to really form a really holistic view of your health. It's breaking down all those pre-existing silos in healthcare that were preventing better outcomes and only adding to the costs. And I think that that is sort of a model that um, health plans um, and employers will will really appreciate. um, And they will sort of embrace virtual primary care um, in the future. And Teladoc can potentially even uh, share in those savings with like new value-based care models. Um, On the other hand, um, with, really their, their virtual primary care offering, it's like an incredible, like 95%, like plus 95 net promoter score. So um, I'm really bullish on that opportunity. And I think that the market will soon sort of come around once they sort of see it. A net promoter score of 95 is incredibly high, by the way. Net pro- MPS yeah. can run from negative 100 to plus 100. So this is what Richard's saying. It's very well received by the patients that are using it. Okay, great. So tell the doc, it sounds like you think there's still plenty of room to run after this acquisition. Let's talk about another company on your list for digital healthcare, because somewhere else we're spending a lot of money on is prescription drugs. And there's a company that you like called GoodRx. Tell me a little bit about this one. So like, basically, I think that... Um, to just um, like summarize the theme, like I guess the, the theme behind sort of GerdRx, the theme behind Teladoc, as you mentioned, is the fact that healthcare these days is so expensive, right? Like you mentioned that $4 trillion, 
25% of that is considered waste. And what sort of um, Teladoc is doing is they're sort of changing the entire underlying infrastructure behind healthcare um, fundamentally from like more of a acute care perspective to more of a preventive model. And what you're looking at with GarderX is they're helping patients to make sense of um, healthcare today. And like these days, like um, sort of 70% of consumers don't even realize that the prices between uh, of drugs between different pharmacies, um, even like a block away can vary dramatically, like upwards of like hundreds of percent. Um, and what GarderX does is they have a multifaceted platform, but their primary objective is to really help consumers um, access affordable healthcare. So they do that through their primary prescription tool, prescription comparison tool, which really allows consumers to go onto their website and compare drug prices across a variety of different pharmacies in their local area, bring the GoodRx app, the coupon on the app, or they can have a savings card and from there they can get up to 90% discounts on like like a like almost all drugs across almost all pharmacies in the country and so um that's their primary platform um like in terms of technicalities of how that works i've written sort of a GoodRx article um and they also do telehealth so what telehealth is is basically like um they have like a marketplace and they have their own hey doctor platform so in terms of their marketplace um Again, they aggregate all of the different telemedicine providers and um, they allow consumers to have sort of the increased transparency to really see how much these different options cost and go from there. What they're doing as a whole, as you can see, is really empowering sort of the consumers to really um, have the tools in order to get um, the best deal for themselves. Like I'd say like healthcare itself is um, a very weird industry because um, like, like when you look at sort of prescriptions, especially like it doesn't operate like a free market. Like the fact is that like, um, and I get into this more in my article, the fact is, is that sort of the PBMs, like they obviously want to benefit from the spread. So like what they do is they have these MAC lists, which are the prices that they set for um, each drug. And they, they give like a different um, list to sort of the pharmacies, like they, um, reimburse the pharmacies less than what they buy, um, like, 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 um, then um, what then the price that they charge to the uh, actual insurers, and they benefit from that spread. So really, it's not sort of a free market. And, but and, and what GoodRx does is like, by bringing the increased transparency, um, the consumers, they have the choice to be able to um, really find the best deals. And as a result, it will sort of bring down prices across the board. I'm glad you mentioned the PBMs, the pharmacy benefits managers, because this is an incredibly complex, I might even call it a black box industry, that for so many decades, nobody had any idea what drug prices were. The PBMs kind of sat between the drug makers and the pharmacies, and then they were getting paid by the insurers at the end of the day. It was, it was tricky. It was very complex on, on how all of this was taking place. Can you tell me a little bit about how GoodRx is actually making money? How are they monetizing? I can see how this is very good for consumers at the end of the day because they're saving money and there's more transparency into the drug pricing. How are they actually getting paid? Sure. So um, basically um, what GoodRx does is they aggregate the prices across all the, the different PBMs. Like the PBMs, they negotiate their in-network um, 
cash prices with all the different pharmacies under their networks. And what like their incentive is, is that because they want to access the increased volume from GoToRx, like GoToRx, if you guys don't know, it's the second most popular medical app um, on the App Store. It has 4.9 million monthly active users. That's huge. And um, basically like they want to access that demand because it basically like it's an incremental source of margin. It doesn't come as any cost to them. They want to maximize the prices that they negotiate. So they part so they partner with GoToRx and GoToRx then allows different PPMs to compete against each other to like access their GoToRx's user base. Um, by like, 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 hey, like I may have the best price for this drug while you may have the best, the best price for the other drug. So GoToRx customers get the best prices across the board. And that's also another reason why I don't really see Amazon really competing with them in terms of prices in the near term is because Amazon only partners with one PBM, Express Scripts. So GoToRx has the advantage here by being independent. PBMs also don't want to work with Amazon because they have their own pharmacy. Like they have, like they're pushing their own sort of mail pharmacy, mail order pharmacy. So what GoToRx does is they aggregate those prices. And for every time a consumer goes to a pharmacy, the pharmacy charges sort of a transaction cost per drug. So um, half of that, half, like half of that goes to the PBM, the other half goes to GoToRx. So they make, um, again, money off of each uh, like a prescription. And the cool thing about that is that um, like 80% is repeat activity. So like 80% of that um, prescription revenue is repeat. So it's like kind of that very predictable recurring revenue sort of uh, SaaS model. And um, really sort of the reason behind that is because like it's really safe, like the coupons are safe. So like consumers don't have to like show their coupon every single time they go to the pharmacy. Um, the, the, like, like it's say within the terminal. So like it actually, again, produces repeat uh, foot traffic to the pharmacy. So the pharmacy can benefit from that as well. Sounds like, like a, they, yeah. yeah, great data advantage. I mean, so much information going on. It's, I can see the appeal immediately for something like this. Okay, great. Good RX. Uh, you know, let's move to the third company that you're watching the space. This one was new to me, Richard. This is one that was definitely not on my radar before. I believe it's pronounced WAMI. Yeah. HMI is the name of the ticker for this company, making wearable devices uh, in China. Tell me a little bit about this one. Sure. So um, this idea I got recently from uh, Sabid's Cap on Twitter. And um, what it basically is, is that it's sort of a smartwatch maker um, in China. They accounted for around like sort of uh, mid-20s um, like, like percentage in terms of the shipments of the total smartwatches in 2019. So they account for almost a quarter of global shipments of smartwatches, yet very few people have heard of them. Um, when you look, sort of look at sort of um, the future of preventive health, like as I mentioned, like I'm very bullish on remote monitoring and Lavongo, again, it produces the devices that teledoc physicians can track patients by. But outside of the glucose meters, like outside of the um, devices specified for people with chronic conditions, regular people can be monitored too. So when you look at sort of the smartwatch, like I think that a lot of people are missing the fact is that a lot of people think that, hey, like a smartwatch is disruptive to what? Like is, this, is it disruptive to the traditional watch industry? I don't think so. 
um, is a smartwatch just an extension of the smartphone? I don't think that's it either. Like what a smartwatch really sort of the potential with a smartwatch is that it can track it like 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 sort of a, like it really enables this idea of like hospital in the home. Like you can have your smartwatch track an increasing amount of metrics. Like you look at Apple's EKG uh, sensor, you look you look, like like you look at their new blood oxygen sensor. People, there's been studies that have proven that um, smartwatches can detect COVID before you have symptoms. So that's one example of the fact that smartwatches can have these um, huge, like like it generates a huge huge amount of health data. We aren't even close to being able to mine that. And what Huami is is it's a play on that health data. So like they have all of this, um, like 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 they're collecting, like they have all of these cheap devices. Like they're sort of one of the leaders within sort of the low cost um, segment of uh, smartwatches, and they're sort of the leader in that. They have this huge amount of data. They like they partner with Xiaomi, and they have this huge amount of data that uh, they're collecting, and like all the sensors on each of these different watches, like they're all standardized, like they're all of the same quality. Um, doesn't matter if you have like a $30 watch, doesn't matter if you have a $200 watch. The founder has this vision to really collect all that data and then sort of partner with these insurers, with these, uh, with um, like these um, like, like um, employers and they have like their own sort of um, Pi Health, which is their own sort of uh, digital health um, sort of guide, which gives consumers a score of a, out of a hundred to tell you where sort of their health is based on the quality of their heart rate data. So it really sort of nudges consumers to better health and that can really improve sort of um, the outcomes by shifting us again to that sort of preventative healthcare model. Like you look at Singapore, they're partnered currently with Apple to give Apple watches to people and people can earn rewards by achieving certain metrics on their Apple Watch. So that's keeping people healthy and that is going to reduce the burden of the healthcare system as a whole. When we think about uh, smart devices, wearable devices, Fitbit immediately comes to mind in the United States. It's a very difficult investment. It was always kind of stuck as just a hardware provider. But it sounds like Fitbit never really had those kind of close integrations with the insurers, with the hospitals, with the healthcare system itself. Uh, it, it sounds, though, though, that Huami is or does have those kind of relationships. Was that one of the key selling points for you on this investment? Yeah, I mean, um, it's still important to note that it's very, very early. Um, they said that they um, don't expect any sort of meaningful like revenue contribution in terms of this health services opportunity anytime soon. So um, they already have like 20 plus partnerships with, academic, with different academic institutions. Um, they have a partnership with Prudential um, Asia, which is this uh, big insurer um, and they have sort of their own sort of Pi Health algorithm incorporated into their digital health app and consumers can buy their watches directly from there. So in terms of that, like um, that's something that they're doing. I really feel like their pace of innovation is extraordinary and um, that's something that I wanna bet on. I also think that's great that they're profitable already. That's something that Fitbit still doesn't have. And you're also looking at the fact that um, again, like they're sort of building out these uh, recurring revenue uh, models and they have sort of this greater vision, which they've um, sort of been great at executing at. And I feel like that's 
um, sort of a differentiator here. But again, like they like they need to be more than what they are uh, today, which is which is just sort of a commoditized hardware manufacturer in order to be a in order to be a successful investment. Yeah, great. Thanks very much, Richard. So, so three ideas that Richard has there within digital healthcare. Again, we went with Teladoc, TDOC, GoodRx, GDRx, and then Wami HMI. Richard, while I have you on the show here with Seven Investing, you know I've got to ask you about cloud computing and about enterprise software. Again, another area that I know that you focus pretty closely on. I'm a big fan of your research in that place. Uh, but I have more targeted questions on this one. These are kind of some of the stories we've seen in 2020 that I'd really like to hear your opinion on. Are, are you ready to jump into cloud computing and enterprise software? Sure, sure. Okay, okay, well, the first one that I wanted to, to set you up with on this one was Alteryx, uh, because Alteryx, not technically a SaaS company, but this is a company that's really trying to embrace, uh, I believe they're calling them citizen data scientists. So it's making it low code, very easy for people to use things like artificial intelligence and jump into the data that these companies have. Uh, we saw Alteryx a couple of months ago in August give up a third of its market cap on weak guidance. Um, it said that, you know, a lot of people were seeing longer sales cycles and smaller deal sizes. Of course, the market just uh, cut this one by a third really quickly. Do you have thoughts on Alteryx as a long-term investment? Is this short-sighted or is there still the long-term thesis intact? Sure. So um, I think it's important to note that um, I personally have uh, sold out of Alteryx um, recently. And um, I'd say sort of, it's really, really hard to tell um, if, they will get back on track. Like, I think it's easy right now to say that, hey, like sort of the pandemic has slowed them down. They reported um, like 25% growth last quarter. They're guiding for around like negative 4% growth next quarter. And they expect a year over year decline in revenue in 2021. They like last quarter, again, like despite the fact that they reported like 25% growth, which is a real acceleration, um, they did report the lowest customer growth since 2017. And um, that is sort of a point of concern um, when placed with everything else. Like, I think that um, a lot of sort of the volatility has come from the fact that, and, and people have noted this, is the fact that they um, weren't really communicative of sort of the impact that 606 accounting had on their, on their revenue. So basically for on-premise software, um, they have to recognize like 35 to 40% of their total contract value up front. And after COVID, like what that happened that resulted in shorter contract durations and analytics wasn't exactly a top priority for many of these organizations or for many of these organizations. So you really saw a very, very steep um, drop in revenue. And when you look at sort of the ARR front, um, that picture is a little bit brighter because they reported like 38% growth last quarter and they're guiding for at least um, 30% in 2021. And management has indicated that uh, this is a better way to measure the business. Um, but I think sort of, that's not my main issue. Like my main issue was basically with the fact that I feel that um, the company is less better position, is, is a less better position today than it was um, before COVID. And first of all, like I'd say that what really um, got me was the fact that the CEO transition from Dean to um, Mark Anderson, like it didn't really feel that was well handled. It seemed like Dean was um, even ousted almost. Um, and like he's been running the company for like over 20 years. 
um, he's the founder and he recently announced like all these different um, new initiatives like um, Alex process automation. And um, that's a huge initiative. Like he's been saying how, you know, like Alteryx is, has innovated the most in the past couple of months than they have um, ever before in his life. And now when you're looking back, I'm asking like, how is this new CEO, Mark Anderson, gonna take that vision and sort of carry that torch forward? I don't know if he can. And it seemed in retrospect that this was more a defensive move, if anything, seeing that they were falling behind the curve, the fact that they chose to remain on-premise as opposed to embrace the cloud. And I, I like, like I feel like another part is really when you look at sort of the wider environment, now that Snowflake is public, we know a lot more about how fast it's growing. And when you look at Snowflake, like I think the vision with Alteryx is that, hey, like data is gonna to continue to remain in silos. Um, but now when you have these centralized data lakes, um, what, like, what, like, what does that mean for Alteryx's place? Like, is it gonna get disintermediaried? So if you look at designer, like it allows users to sort of load, clean, prep and blend data together um, and then sort of analyze it, apply machine learning, create visualizations. Um, and like, 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 like if Snowflake like takes a chunk out of that, like what place left is there for Alteryx? It's just, gonna, it just like, it's just gonna be handling sort of the analytics almost. Um, so I think that um, definitely, um, Alteryx has tried to partner with Snowflake, but I don't think that they have a partnership yet. Um, I just see Snowflake as being better positioned on the value chain. So that's another point that really uh, sort of um, scared me away, I feel. Um, I think that overall the investment could turn out successful. Um, they could definitely have, again, that re-acceleration in 2021. I feel like the comps right now, they're quite favorable. And if they can re-accelerate their contracts um, and, and, and the customer growth, then it, like it could very well, again, see that uh, impact of very, very fast revenue acceleration. I think that's some great insight there, uh, especially when you see that everyone is kind of saying the same thing in their conference calls. Oh, it's COVID. Oh, the deals are smaller. Oh, you know, it's harder to close. But then you see the reality of kind of the must-haves and the nice-to-haves that, that CIOs or decision makers are having to be faced with right now. Um, some companies are really growing quickly, even in the, the time of COVID, and others are are decreasing in their revenue contribution. So interesting points about uh, about Alteryx there. I want to ask you about another one, Richard, Agora out in China. Ticker on this is API. Um, it's been called by a lot of people the Twilio of China. I, I know you don't really like that description so much, but tell me a little bit about kind of what this company is doing. Sure. So um, what Agora is, is that, um, again, like, I, like, I feel like you could, um, like with the knowledge of Twilio, you could also understand Agora because again, like it's that idea of programmable video and that's a component of what Twilio does as well. But I think like what really differentiates Agora is the fact that they are really focused on live streaming. They're focused on sort of bigger audience sizes. Like Twilio, it's mainly for group chats. Like it's up to 50 um, people. Whereas with Agora, you can have um, like, like um like like around like 15 to like 18 or something hosts and you can have up to a million audience members so that's something that really differentiates them they have their own sort of um specialized edge network which is which which they call um like like again like a network of 250 points of presence all over the globe with um their uh, software-defined real-time network layered on top 
And that allows them to really sort of improve latency, improve sort of video quality and um, sort of deliver that superior customer experience um, than someone with uh, fewer points of presence, like you look at Twilio. Um, but I like um, they've uh, done sort of um, like um, pretty well so far in terms of the revenue growth, but um, it, like definitely they, they took sort of a big deceleration last quarter in terms of their revenue growth and gross margins, um, which is quite concerning along with the fact that Zoom recently announced a programmable video product where they're allowing Google to have their own customizable software development kit. And Twilio again is moving more and more into video. So right now, even though they don't have sort of the same capability as Agora um, in terms of live streaming, um, I feel that um, again, like technology isn't a moat and Agora will need to compete more favorable, like like in order to retain sort of their value in the future, I feel like they need something else to differentiate them. Um, and I'm not really that confident that um, they really sort of have that yet. So not super bullish on Agora. There's an opportunity for live streaming and video in China, but still there's some question marks it sounds like that you have about this company. Yeah, it's like, it's a huge opportunity because like, um, like, um, with like live stream shopping, like you look at the fact that, you know, like Shopify recently announced like they're um, a partner of TikTok even, it's like a huge opportunity, but like so far, like the results haven't come down to their financials yet. Um, like you, like um, I was um, sort of disappointed to see sort of the pace of revenue deceleration. And they mentioned that their biggest opportunity is in education. They don't have that many live streaming customer. I mean, that like live live, live stream e commerce uh, customers. So um, it's still sort of a question mark on me with, with that investment. Um, that's an interesting segue for the next topic that I want to get into because Agora was founded in 2013 out, out in Silicon Valley by Tony Zhao, who also worked at WebEx with Eric Yuan, who went on to you know found Zoom, has been very successful with that. But you know, I've seen some of your analysis kind of suggesting there might be a decoupling or debundling of Zoom, where these companies that kind of go out and they say, okay, we're, we're an opportunity for any industry out there. But then you've got kind of things like Agora that are allowing industry-specific verticals to pop up that are specific for certain spaces. You mentioned education. I know another one is gaming. Gaming is really big on live streaming right now. The relationship between a company like Agora and something like Zoom is certainly interesting and, and one to keep an eye on. So Zoom's my next topic. I guess I wanted to ask you about, Richard, because uh, Zoom stock is up over 500% in 2020. It's generally recognized as the poster child of the work from home COVID beneficiary out there. But again, I mean, we've kind of seen Zoom grow so quickly, and it seems like there might be other competitors that are at least interested in this space. Do you think that Zoom's momentum that they're on right now can continue? Yeah, so with Zoom, I feel like, of course, like um, their uh, Q2 was amazing in terms of the acceleration. Their um, Q3, it saw more of a, of a sequential slowdown. Um, and I feel like sort of the main um, components of the thesis, again, is the fact that because of the fact that in the beginning, they didn't really have switching costs. They didn't have much of a moat in terms of that, which allowed them to go viral very, very quickly because um, it was so quickly to just like, like, like it was so easy to just um, install. And um, once sort of COVID hit, it was sort of the go-to solution. 
for both enterprises and consumers, which was really interesting to see. Um, now, like, is it sustainable is the question. And I think that mainly it, it's great to see the fact that they're taking advantage of their network effects because I don't feel like network effects in themselves without sort of switching costs as well are much of a mode. Um, because like if a new solution, that, like, like if a better technology comes along, like those can reverse really quickly. Can Zoom maintain that technological advantage? Um, I don't know if they can for the next like 10 years, like even though big tech has historically not done so well in this category, um, could they eventually sort of match Zoom's uh, capability? Uh, maybe, um, it's quite possible. Um, so what really excited me was the fact that they were sort of branching to become more of a platform play. And that was seen with OnZoom, which is their events marketplace. And the fact that they opened up the platform to be sort of a customizable SDK. And I feel like um, like, like a Zoom phone is also another big driver. Um, and I feel like um, really sort of uh, it's those opportunities that will really push them into that next leg of growth. Um, but again, like sort of last conference call, even though the numbers were great on the surface, like it was kind of disappointing that they mentioned that they don't expect on Zoom to be a material revenue driver in 2021. It'll also take time for a Zoom phone to really take off as well. It's not gonna be driving top line income soon. So again, it's really, really hard at this point to predict where the revenue growth will clock in at next year. Some people have said negative growth. Some people have said upwards of 50% growth. So uh, I feel like a lot of it still depends on how like, like, like the overall macro work from home trend. So in terms of that, like there's been like recently like some great articles like Not Boring wrote like a good one recently. and. In that, he really talked about how work from home is not going to go away that quickly because it's not sort of a dichotomy between, you know, like you either spend like 100% of your time on Zoom or you spend 100% of your in the office. Companies are going to be forced to, to like um, really offer that opportunity in the future to work from home if you choose. And that opens up a new opportunity in terms of not only increased adoption of Zoom, but like also you can look at people leaning around to like different countries, um, more travel in terms of uh, like um, going to like these places, these, all these different locales to work. And I feel like that could definitely um, benefit the staying power of Zoom, um, but it's not like a company that I would sort of bet all my horses on right now. Um, like, like I still feel like they um, do well. Like I still feel like work from home, it's, has staying power and it's not um, like like that on off shift that people think that the vaccine is gonna make it out to be. But uh, I really um, like um, still need to see, um, I guess, more evidence of that playing out. It's the land and expand software model, right? It's amazing yeah. what they've accomplished this year. They've got a lot of users on the platform. Now it's that expand, like you were saying, the staying costs, the switching costs, the new Zoom phone, the software development kit, whatever it is, the platform to build things on top of it to see if they've really got legs behind this. Yeah. 
Yeah, great, Richard. Well, you know, just to wrap this all up, um, our mission here at Seven Investing is to empower others to be more involved with investing. I know that's something you're very passionate about as well. And so kind of just an open-ended final question for you is if you're new to investing or, you know, you're trying to learn about the stock market and how all of this works, do you have a couple ideas or, or tips for people that are that are starting to figure out this whole crazy thing called the stock market? Yeah, so I'd say like people should definitely um, read as much as possible. Like I feel like um, it's super, super important to really open your mind to like all these um, different perspectives. Like you don't really have to lock yourself in. Like, like I feel like um, sort of a mistake that maybe a lot of investors make is the fact that they like read one guy, like, like, they, like they maybe have first exposure to Warren Buffett and they sort of embrace Warren Buffett's philosophy without sort of considering all of the other ways to invest like everyone has different um like 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 you should definitely like read Buffett of course you should definitely read um Phil Fisher you should definitely read Peter Lynch um you should also sort of like one book that I recently recommended was Seven Powers and that really talks about competitive advantages um so you should read that too like there's also a ton of great sort of fund managers to follow um I feel like Joe like like, 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 of course, like I worked for him, but uh, even if I didn't, I feel like he's one of the best sort of investors that I met, like, like, like his boss, like his philosophy really resonates with me. So um, like, like, like Joe at Saga Partners. And um, like, there's also like a bunch of other great resources. Like, of course, like at some of the investing, you guys provide like such a great, um, like, like, like it doesn't cost that much per month either. So like, I feel like readers, um, like listeners, like if you haven't like subscribed to like Sun Investing, it's definitely like a great resource. The write-ups sorts of ideas are really helpful for new investors. Um, and like, um, there's also like some other sort of uh, great resources on Twitter. Like I have my own sort of growth investing resource list, which is my pinned tweet. So definitely go and check that out as well. Um, but yeah, just make sure that you have sort of the open perspective. Like I'm really like a fan of having this multidisciplinary approach to investing because like you um, look at like, like, like there was this book that I was reading recently called Range. Um, and that book, it basically talks about the importance of having sort of a multidisciplinary approach um, and the ability to like think um, and, and connect the dots across like different, um, different uh, sectors. So like, with like closed sort of environments like chess, like, you know, like you make a move and you immediately get feedback, but it's different investing. In investing, you could get lucky for like a long time and you could think that your investing strategy is right for a long time, but you really need to like sort of um, bring sort of that holistic approach to um, sort of um, like, I guess it personally helped me to like have that background in history, have that background in technology, have that background in accounting and finance, have that background in marketing, that background in psychology even to determine um, like, like, um, like, like having a temperament. So bring all those together. I feel like it really makes you to be a better investor because it allows you to think in a different way than most other market participants would. So definitely absorb as much as possible, read as much as possible. Well, if I can summarize that, Richard, by saying stay hungry, read and absorb as much as possible and keep a holistic and open mind, uh, that's probably yeah. a good start for getting investing. Well, great. Thanks very much again to, to Richard Chu, our guest this afternoon. He is an investment analyst at Saga Partners and Luca Capital, joining me from Toronto. Uh, Richard, it was really great chatting with you. Thanks for joining me at 7 Investing. Thanks for having me, Simon. And it's our mission here at 7 Investing to empower you to invest in your future. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. 
reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.